Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And TV Editor Liz Shannon Miller. Hello. We're all doing our finest East Town accents as we will be discussing Mayor of East Town. I don't even really like, is this supposed to be a Philly accent or a Pennsylvania? Like, so there like, are different what? accents. I listened to an interview with the creator and he sounded like normal. And then some words with the O's. I was like, what is it like Southern? But like, I know there are different regional dialects all throughout Pennsylvania. So it's just a, apparently it's specific to wherever East, whatever Town. region this was supposed to be. Yeah. Well, it- uh, Sorry. Uh, the, the thing I find fascinating about the emphasis on the accent is that, you know, of course, like accents like that, regional accents like that only exist in communities where people don't really leave those communities. Mm-hmm. They just kind of stay there for the rest for their entire lives. And I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the show for me is just kind of how that accent reflects that. But that's a whole that's a deep, a deep cut point to make in terms of what we're actually trying to discuss, which is just the show in general. Yeah, and just as a, as a warning to our listeners, because the season finale aired this past Sunday, all episodes are now available. We will be going into the spoilers on this episode. I think we have to, if we're going to discuss who was the killer and what is was the show about. And to me, I actually think those two points are in contention with each other because I feel like for me, I sort of ended Mare of Easttown being like, this is a really good grief drama that is being pulled, that is being slightly diminished by a plot engine involving a murder story. And the, the murder mystery of it all, it's like, yes, this moves everything forward. It does kind of pay off thematically at the very end, but there are sort of paths that it forces us to go down that aren't as rewarding as just sort of watching this woman sort of wrestle with her grief and this notion of families that are broken apart and how do you, you know, persevere. Uh, to me, that was the most captivating aspect of Mayor of Easttown. I strongly disagree. <laughs> um, I actually M- found- Murderino the- Adam Chitwood. <laughs> well, no, I actually, so going into the finale, I uh, pretty strongly, and listen to this, pretty strongly believed it was Lori, um, just based on her being shifty I had this theory that, you know, she found out and, you know, John had been with Aaron and that was what had happened. And John was the real father by making the real killer Lori and John's son. I think it really ties the entire thing thematically together for me, which is a story about parents and children and, Mm -hmm. and not only like facing your grief and like clearly Mare has not confronted her grief. She has not confronted her, her son's death. But in like fully realizing that not only is Ryan the killer, but it's an accidental killer. Like the the line that like he doesn't even know how to use a gun really kind of broke me. Like it was a very emotional confrontation between Mare and Lori. Um, because when Mare figures it out, she has to make the conscious decision to take her best friend's son away from her. And she had her own son taken away from her. And so it's this kind of this, it's this emotional conflict. It's the right thing to do, obviously. Um, but it, to me, it just made it that much richer than if it was just like, oh, it was the shifty priest. And I was like, oh, well, okay. I, and I would, I would sort of add a sort of addendum. It's not so much that it's like all murder story bad as much as like there were a lot of f- blind alleys that it went down. Like ultimately, like we found a rando in a house that's been kidnapping girls and like 
that to me just felt like part of a different story that didn't feel true to sort of the community that was being explored in the in the show like it felt like a way to sort of miss it felt like a big misdirect that i felt didn't have any emotional resonance well i think with 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 stories like this with big genre tales uh with shows that belong to this genre like there is the expectation that you have to kind of you you have to pay homage to the trappings you have to have the red herrings you have to have the list of suspects you have to go into the final episode with you know a pretty good idea of who the killer might be but also plenty of expectation that there that you could be completely wrong um i think and i think the the trick with like shows like mayor which want to be more than just uh, a sad murder show mm-hmm. that want like that that want to hit like a certain like level of achievement beyond that like that's that's their big tr- struggle is like how do you how do you deliver the same emotional satisfaction that a viewer gets after watching an episode of Columbo with also kind of this other like heightened level of drama and you know I think I, I personally feel like kind of Mare kind of hit the right balance uh, I, I I aside from the kind of ripped from the headlines aspect of it I didn't mind the uh, the the Katie Bailey, uh, girl, uh, you know, girls, you know, girls trapped by the weirdo guy, uh, uh, you know, kind of, I guess subplot. I it, it feels weird to call it like a misdirect, but yeah, I, I mean, I I I kind of like that just because I appreciated the randomness of it. But I think, yeah, it's 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 a tricky show, but I I do think they kind of stuck the landing in a lot of respects, and I think it does come down to the the, the what what Adam talked about with the parallels with the sons. Uh, yeah, no, I think it you know it did come down to like I felt like because it hit its thematic mark, I felt like I could sort of even though I was kind of irked by the murder stuff as well as a couple other things, I felt like I could kind of overlook its failings. Like I like I ultimately like wait, so why was Dylan so mad about the journals, you know, if they were just trying to protect Aaron, you know, like it, it, there were some things in there that just didn't always add up, but I was like, eh, you know. Well, the reason, the reason Dylan wanted to burn the journals is because uh, he, he was worried that the journals would prove that he wasn't DJ's father and his parents really wanted to keep DJ. Mm, yeah. Uh, that was, I think that was, that was the missing. I mean, admittedly Dylan, I think, I think the way Dylan like literally was stalking. Right. Um, like, like the way he was going about thing. it, like, I'm going to hurt you. There's some, something damaging in here. Yeah. That was, that was, that I thought went over the top and was like a, a kind of a, 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 a clear misdirect to make us think that Dylan was a potential suspect. Um, you know, that, that, that scene I think didn't quite work as well as others in the sequence in, in the series. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's a tough one. The thing I find really interesting about about Mary's town, and I think this is uh, th- this is something I, you know, that comes up when it, in in relation to what I just what I started off talking about with the accent, is the question of leaving East Town, mm-hmm. and uh, which is something that doesn't get hit on a lot in the show, but the idea that Mayor is. Mare is Mare is in East Town, and Mare just will always be in East Town. And the idea in it's a it's an it's a it's an idea that also gets echoed by uh, you know the you know Pastor Mark, where he's talking about like you know where would I go? This is my home, and 
then you have that in, and you have, uh, you know, Siobhan saying, you know, you love it here and this place is better because you're here. And this idea of being in a place and being of a place, like as the title very directly says, and, uh, you know, knowing that that'll never change. And, you know, it's, it's something that I don't know if the show is actively engaged with discussing, but it does seem to be like a thematic undercurrent that, you know, you don't see a lot of when it comes to talking about shows set in small towns. Like the, uh, the dynamic is either you leave or you stay. And, uh, you know, the fact that Mare seems relatively happy at the, or re- relatively content with the idea that she's, you know, in this place forever uh, is an interesting one to explore. Well, it felt true to life to me too. I mean, that whole idea that the those five basketball stars are still there, like they, you know, they're still forcing them to relive their glory days of like playing basketball in high school. And as someone who grew up in a bigger town, but went to school in a smaller town that like sports was life like that felt very like i know plenty of people who have spent their entire lives in this small town and are still you know dining out on the story of like hitting that uh that basketball shot matt i know you're thinking of parks and rec (laughs) no no (laughs) no actually i was about to say blake griffin (laughs) yes well blake griffin too um no i was thinking of uh uh left shrimp um (laughs) uh but uh like that felt very and that's part of why i really loved the the first episode because it it felt like it so richly fleshed out all of these characters in a really truthful way and i felt like liz like you said that's true up through the finale because it it's this microcosm and and the katie bailey stuff you know i agree that was a little bit too far of a red of a red herring but that also reinforced the idea of like this is a small town like she is you know one of her former like basketball teammates who was someone she sees all the time in the town it's also of the mother of a woman who went of a girl who went missing and who you know blames mare for not finding her uh it's kind of this thing of like you can't escape it because it's such a small town you're going to see that person when you go to the store um and i don't know that, that was just part of like the rich tapestry of of this whole thing of where kind of like everyone knows everyone and i thought you know a lot of the stuff I thought was really delicately handled. I mean, this is working in the genre of a murder mystery and I really like murder mysteries. And so, you know, it has the security camera. The security camera is the thing that like forces Mare to realize like, oh, I, I've got the proof. This is what happened. Uh, and it's in the first episode. It, you come back to it in like episode three. I think you're back in the house again in episode five. So it's subtly letting you like remember. And as she was like walking in the house in the finale, I was like, is this going to be? But it like as they were talking about like grief, I was like, oh, this is an organic reason enough for him to call her over here and for them to have this conversation. And so it's not just kind of like, you know, stumbling over itself to like get to the plot thing that it wants to do. And you just sort of shrug it off. It's like, of course he has the same gun, the very same gun that was, that they thought that, uh, you know, the father had that, you know, he was covering for. Mm-hmm. Well, the, it's the detective a, special. Well, that's the thing is they don't like John didn't know what the gun was. And mm. the, the story was that uh, Aaron had brought the gun. So it was right. like, oh, we don't know what the gun I mean, is. And the gun is, will forever be missing. And if you, yeah. yeah. And if you make the gun a specific kind of gun that you can't find anywhere else, then if mm. this man is going to mention it, you're going to remember that that's the gun. Right. I don't know. I felt like a lot of that was really elegantly plotted. Because, um, you know, I listened to an interview with the showrunner after the uh, thing and, 
he was talking about, you know, he's watched a lot of these shows and he knows that you have to have a finale that is satisfying, that is surprising, but also satisfying. As opposed yeah. to creators would be like, finales, meh. Well, there's, there have been enough of these kinds of shows where you get to the end and you're like, eh, that kind of ruined it or like that really right. whiffed the ending there. And so he knew that he had to get the bones of the mystery together first and then start weaving the character stuff around that foundation, which I think was the right way to go about it. Uh, let me ask you guys a oh sorry Matt uh I was just gonna I was just gonna say I do feel like the red herring of it all to me the thing that sort of sticks out that it's like this was a red herring is the fact that like Zabel is just not even mentioned in the finale like he's just a non-presence anymore like because that storyline has been exhausted because it's not really the storyline that's literally what I was going to ask about because like I have uh I have HBO Max open uh in another window over here and uh, the mayor of Easttown thumbnail has our good friend Evan Peters in it. And who, uh, after, you know, it's only been like two weeks, but I, I have, I was like, oh, that's right. Evan Peters was on this show for a really long period of time. And he was a pretty significant character. And, uh, but by the time we got to the finale, he, he is like just kind of a memory and even not even one that gets remembered really. Um, yeah, I expected like someone to visit a gravesite at some point, but no, it's just yeah. he's gone. Yeah, that gets dropped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, and I guess like my question is for you guys is how do you feel about that? Because it, it does, it is on the one hand something that kind of feels true to life, but on the other hand, I mean, like, and even like for Mare, like she had one kiss with the guy, she went on one date with him, and yeah, of course, you know, she ends up going back to uh, Guy Pierce, and you know, I don't blame her uh, I feel- necessarily. I feel like it's not, I'm not bothered by the fact that Mare moves on. I'm sort of, I think I'm a little annoyed that there wasn't like a, like at least like a little brief montage or a cutaway or something of his mother at his graves. Like, because that would go reinforce your theme of these families ripped apart. And like, mm. how do you deal with grief? Like yeah. that Zabel was not just some detective. It was, he was a son and he, you know, his mother lost him too soon. You know, he died in the light of duty. Like to me, that, would reinforce this notion that, you know, we grieve because we've lost people and, and, and that these people are not simply uh, a list, you know, a flashback or a list of ideas. Like even, and, and I think sometimes the film, the film, the show could kind of traipse into that. Like you, I think it was actively working against the notion that like Kevin was just a, a cipher. It didn't want to make him just, so it had to sort of be like, he had these ticks, and, you know, you know, Siobhan is trying to make this video about him, like trying to make him a person rather yeah. than an event that is important to me. Like, and I think that's a tricky balance. Like how do you make someone who is not really a character and yet looms large in their absence? Yeah, I think, I mean, Zabel was one of my favorite parts of the show. I thought uh, he was funny. Um, and just really a delight and kind of like a, a breath of fresh air at points. Um, but I have also, so I interviewed Julian Nicholson and, you know, they shot, they so they block shot the entire series because it's written by one guy, directed by one guy, every single episode. So they shot some of the finale scenes in the first month of shooting. And then they break for this huge, you know, the, the pandemic shuts everything down. And it sounds like from that interview and from listening to an interview with the showrunner is that they had a lot of time to edit in that interim and they decided what they needed to fix, what they needed to take away. One of the things they fixed was, I guess, Zabel was initially kind of like cocky and kind mm. of like sure headed. 
and they decided to make him someone who knows he's a little bit out of his depth and like add some humor there to it. Um, but then another thing he mentioned is that in, I guess in the finale in the initial cut of it, they were, you know, those like scenes of like showing like Katie Bailey going to an a house, new house and stuff. There's going to be like a montage at the end of the finale that showed like checked in with everyone. And then he realized, no, that's not right. We need to end with Lori and Mare because that's the central relationship of the series. That's central relationship of the episode. All of this to say, like, I appreciate the fact that this was like a living, breathing thing. It wasn't like they wrote it and then that is exactly what they shot. And then that's how it went. I think in that somewhere in that though, it feels like the Zabel stuff kind of fell away or wasn't followed up on. But like you, Matt, I'm not, you know, I, it made sense to me that Mare moved on quickly because Mare is someone who throughout this entire series is like, she is denying her grief and like, you don't see her break down very often. Um, so it would make sense that she would kind of just like shove it in the back of her brain and not really confront it. You really only get that in the scene where she goes to try and visit Zabel's mother. Um, mm -hmm who basically says Mare is responsible for her son's death. And then Mare kind of breaks down when she gets home and sees her mom. Um, and I thought that was nice, but it was strange for like a character who was a pretty central part of the series to like, you know, he died and then it's not really brought up again. Yeah. And not, not only not brought up again, but not brought up again in a series that's about grief and loss yeah. and fracturing yeah. of families. Yeah. I, I do agree that like one shot, like there, there, I mean, there's, that they had a whole montage right in the middle of the episode that would have been at the perfect place for just a quick shot of uh of uh zabel's mother at the graveside or yeah. something else great zabel's mother just you know grocery shopping even like just mm -hmm. a, a, any acknowledgement that she existed and had you know her ha had you know a life still or was still going moving on like i i do really agree with that uh but i i do want to i do want to compliment one thing on that finale and it's something i I, I always, I always love, I always love when a show does this really well, which is uh, it moved through time very, in a lot of ways, very fast and very subtly. Like mm -hmm. it, you know, I feel like, it, it, yeah, I'm, I feel like through context clues, you could probably pinpoint it like, but uh, from, from just off the top of my head, uh, you know, uh, Aaron dies in January. Um, I think the uh, inter the interrogation room footage of uh, John Ross had a timestamp on it of February 2020, and uh, then I, I'm pretty sure like and then like like basically so the the finale takes place probably over the course of about three or four months uh, because you know it, with uh, you know with a uh, Siobhan going off to college near the end. So it might even be longer than that. Might I think it was even longer months. because yeah. the, the priest says like, it's been a harrowing eight months or, or eight months ago, I would have said. Oh, well, there, there you go. So yeah, yeah. so that would, that it, and that would track all, it, it was Siobhan going off to school, like she could have gone off at the end of, at, you know, at the beginning of summer, but more likely she went off at the end of summer. So uh, yeah, and yeah, that all tracks. So that's i mean but the fact a the fact that they don't need to put like firm timestamps on it that's that's totally great but i think when a show can do that in a way that feel where you really feel the passage of time like without it having without it being beaten over your head like that's always like that's that that is the kind of skill that you get you, you don't see too often on tv and i i really appreciated that can I talk a little bit about a minor thing the show did that I actually really enjoyed and I thought was played very well? Which no, was, God, no, God, no, only negativity. Not. Get out of here. All right. Off Bye. brand. Bye. 
No. I really liked the the Guy Pierce stuff because yeah. the show, first off, the show makes it clear in the first episode that he's not the killer. There's no way for that timeline to work out. So it's not like he's looming. It's like, oh, she's dating this guy, but he's evil. You know, like there's just, but I liked that he was a presence in a way that was kind of reassuring and positive and not sort of like um, a way to condemn her. And yet he was also not the totality of her world. Like he was sort of just this nice presence that she could, you know, that could be a sounding board for her in a way that no one else could be. But he wasn't like the essential part, like a cornerstone of her identity. And I just thought that was handled very well. Um, Cause you assume for like an actor of Guy Pierce's caliber, it's like, oh, he must be, you know. Yeah, he made, must be connected. Yeah. He must be connected yeah. to this crime. And it's like, no, he's just a good guy who who wants to, who, who likes this lady. And I was like, that's nice. That's a nice thing. Well, and the yeah. decision to have them hook up in the first episode. So you're not like waiting, like it's not this culmination event where Mary gets fixed because she decides to sleep with him finally mm-hmm. or something like yeah. that. Right. I, 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 I agree. I, I really appreciated that storyline as well. Yeah, I mean, I had I I had some fun in at least one recap, uh, joking about Guy Pierce isn't off the hook yet. I'm still suspicious because <laughs> uh, it's always fun to be suspicious of Guy Pierce because he's up to no good. But he's I, I usually think, up to no good in things. Well, yeah. that's true. But I, I think I, I really like that you brought him up because I I really enjoyed his character, and one aspect of the character I really enjoyed was the fact that you know he was he was he was so well defined as someone who has lived a life is you know kind of and has gone through some gone through gone through some crap like he's really he's you can tell like he had a really bad period of his life really made some really poor choices really regrets those choices but has come out on the other side and is this kind of you know just just seems like a really solid put together person as a result of his experiences not because not despite them and in in some respects, like it makes him such a great part, partner for Mare because she's like still in that journey. She's still kind of working her way to that place. And he's kind of like there as a, you know, as an example that you can, you, you can have just like the, you can, you can experience the worst thing you ever experienced in your life and you can still come out on the other side. Um, and I think that that was a really, a really, he did add a really valuable presence to it. Um, I just finally watched, uh, the movie, the gift, uh, the Sam Raimi film from 2000 for the first time, uh, and watching that, it was like literally this weekend and watching that after having seen the mayor finale, I was like, Oh, okay. This is the crappy version of, uh, of what mayor did. Cause, um, the gift, I don't want to spoil the gift necessarily, but the gift does in fact, take the swerve that the, the, the pretty obvious swerve that, um, that mayor of Easttown did not, uh, in terms of, in terms of revealing its killer. And, uh, yeah. And I, I appreciate the fact that, yeah, sometimes a nice, sometimes a nice guy with really nice cheekbones is like a nice guy with really nice cheekbones. <laughs> I also like that mayor like got something from her therapy. Like that was like useful yeah. for her. Although I was a little like, it's a, there, I wish there'd been a better way to get her to therapy than like, oh, you did this super duper corrupt thing that was, <laughs> should have you kicked off the police force forever. I will say yeah. when I talked to Julia Nicholson, when she was talking about like Mayor deciding to like track down uh, or, or like arrest Ryan, she was like, I mean, come on, you're going to plant drugs on like your, your, the mother of your grandson 
and like you're gonna now is when you decide to do the right thing (laughs) (laughs) now when it doesn't you found your moral compass yeah when it doesn't impact you directly now it's time to you know go for justice i love when actors have opinions on shows that are still that they may or may not believe are rooted in their character's point of view but totally are like that is full on like you know like let john take the fall like it was an accident like come on man (laughs) yeah i mean well it's 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 like yeah like when it comes to that choice it is interesting like I think I was joking a, a while back about, uh, you know, how I really want to see a Perry Mason, Mayor of Easttown crossover, like just, you know, Matthew Reese and Kate Winslet getting drunk together and then solving crime. Oh my uh, God. Like just to watch Mayor like time travel and like have her deal with life in that, in that era. She just, yeah, just a five minute sequence of Mayor swearing about stockings. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh but I, it, one thing I would in talking about it that I realized is that Perry Mason would one hundred percent have let John just take the fall and not put the kid in prison. Like, For sure. uh, and I think there's something there's something really interesting about the fact that you see Mayor make the decision, but you don't you so you see Mayor make the decision, but it doesn't seem like she, she's not so much struggling with the choice as she is just the you know impact of the choice like she she she's there's no question that she's going to do the she's going to do what in in her head is the right thing yeah for sure well and i also i mean god how good are kate and julianne and then in those finale scenes they're just incredible like that scene in the car broke my heart but then that that ending scene which apparently julianne told me like that was entirely scripted because i was like you know oh how did you guys find the body language and the decision to she was like it was all in the script exactly what happened gosh yeah just good good writing man yeah um yeah i think uh not if if slash when i have time i do think there's something really interesting to write about how about like when hbo when hbo characters have to go to therapies the therapy it's not just in treat not just mary but in in treatment but they're I feel like a lot of other examples. Well, I mean, the I mean, Sopranos. sopranos. <laughs> so the king of HBO characters have to go to therapy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I do. I, I I'm circling back to something Matt said earlier, but about like just you know, it's it's nice that the that the, that the therapy Mare goes through is like a genuine positive force in her life, and mm-hmm. you know, it it it. it the, it, you know therapy is never of course the easiest thing like you know it, not just emotionally but you also have to you know find the right therapist you have to be ready to you know actually do the work and the fact that you know we got to see a really positive example of all of those things happening uh was great another thing i really liked about the show and again this goes more to sort of like the, the characters and sort of the interactions is that it doesn't it absolves parents in a way that i feel like sort of says like, you know, you feel responsible for your kids, even when you have done nothing wrong, you know, personally, like it's, it's such an easy line to be like, well, if the kids went bad, the parents are to blame, obviously. And it's not like these are perfect people, but like, I would, at no point would you be like, well, you know, um, Lori is a bad mom. And that's why her kid is a murderer. You know, like it's, it's more like, there's this trauma and like you do your best, but like these sort of things ripple out and kind of come for you in a way that is unexpected. And and then what do you do when that arrives? And I think that was sort of, I don't know. I found that a very fascinating angle to take rather than simply being like, you know, 
these parents are scumbags and then they have scumbag kids and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like what happens when parents either feel like they failed their kids or actually failed their kids. Mm -hmm. And what is the impact on the parents that. Right. Um, That was a really interesting idea. Speaking of parents, um, maybe, maybe the showrunner talked about this uh, in the interview you listened to, uh, but where do you guys land on the fact that, you know, we can, we are kind of just left to assume that John Ross was released from prison at some point uh, for not committing the murder. He well, I assume he would still be. He would still have been. Oh he yeah. still would have gone. He still would have had to do time for essentially. You know. A, you know. A betting. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, I, I mean, genuinely had not thought about it until now. To be honest, uh, John was so far from my mind at that point. Uh, other than just like bad man. Yeah, I feel like for him just you know in a weird way he is exiled (laughs) um for you know uh, his sort of sin reverberated far beyond anything he could have comprehended in his in his weakest moments yeah i mean he's certainly never coming back to lori's house like um you'll have to find a new home (laughs) (laughs) i did appreciate though like if you like the performances are really good so julianne told me that she was told before they started production that Ryan was the killer. And she says the actors who played John and Billy were also told. And I assume Kate knew because she was the executive producer. But like it really drove their performances and not in a way where, and I mentioned this to her, you know, there's that scene where she's taking DJ to get like his uh, ears fixed. And at that point I still thought she was the killer. And I was like, is she gonna kill this baby? Because like she was getting a very well, they play they toyed with that early on in the season when Dylan looks at DJ and he's like, "Is he going to kill that baby?" Yes, but in <laughs> hindsight, it works perfectly because you, what's happening in that moment is Lori has just recently discovered that her son killed this woman and that this is John's kid, and she's turning over in her head like, I mean, I'm sure she is spinning out and just wrapped with guilt and in decisiveness and like what is the right thing to do and you know it's in those performances you know it was also thinking back to i think it's episode six where john is like moving in with his dad and he's like carrying a mattress upstairs and whatever and billy comes in and like billy's super pissed at him and he's essentially like you know learn to keep your dick in your pants or something about like you know take responsibility for your actions we assume it to mean it's the affair but it works knowing that like he is responsible for them having to hide a murder right so i just think everything like because there are some things where like you think an actor knows before and it kind of colors the performance or you feel like the director is really like milking it to get a red herring reaction out of someone but to me everything really tracks if you go back and look at it yeah um one thing one thing i wanted to ask you guys about uh was when laurie's at the doctor's office and the doctor asks her to you know confirm all the information on the screen is correct is I mean, it was the point of that insert shot basically just to confirm that dj's full name is going to is like dylan john and that aaron's last name mcmenahan i mcmenahan i want to see a blooper reel of everyone <laughs> flubbing the line mcmenahan yeah but like, is that, was that, was that, I think, was, was that all you guys kind of took from that moment? I mean, to me, actually, I thought that was one of the bigger gut punches of the finale where it's like, you have this child and has three names, Dylan, John McMenamin, and none of those people are related to, to Lori any really anymore. Uh, and yet she's going to have to care for this child. 
Right. You know, she doesn't know Dylan. John is, you know, has ruined her life and she didn't really have that much of a relationship with Aaron McMiniman and she's going to have to raise the child. And her son killed McMiniman. And her son killed McMiniman. Her son killed Aaron. Yeah. So that's to me, that name, that's a loaded, like it goes from DJ to being a very loaded name. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand it at the beginning, but in hindsight to me, it was, uh, I didn't quite pick up on it exactly like you did, Matt, but I think that's correct. Mine was more like just the name McMenamin and like, oh, my son killed that girl. Yeah. Um, killed her father, killed his father. Yeah. The other thing, by the way, I wanted to mention was just how gr- wonderful it is to have a completely original story on television yeah. at, at, like, like this, because, you know, it's it, it, you just just on the sheer basis of the fact that none of us have to be like, well, in the book, they did something <laughs> completely different um, or in the book. We, we, we already knew who the killer was because it's the same killer from the book. Like, I mean, I, I'm all for adaptations and it's been definitely a source of great television and film for for decades. But that being said, there is something really nice about an original murder mystery where the only people who know how the murder, who who the murderer is, are the people who are making the story because it's never been told before. And it feels like that shouldn't be such a novel concept, yet it totally is. Or even just the conversations. Like, I love Perry Mason, but the whole like, oh, is it like, is it? derogatory to the original Perry Mason because it's so gritty or this isn't what Perry Mason would actually do. Like those conversations just really bore me. So to be able to be spared that <laughs> was nice. Yeah. I feel like Watchmen sidestepped that really well. No one was like, huh, Alan Moore did it better or like, you know, I mean, yeah, Watchmen sure there were such a, I think also Watchmen sidestepped it beautifully and that Alan Moore just is on record. He's like, I hate all adaptations of my work and please leave me alone. <laughs> and you're like, okay, Alan. And then you just kind of go on with your life. Well, and, and the fact, but in, into its credit, Watchmen also was also another essentially original story. Like yeah. mm-hmm. it was using, it was using characters, but it had a completely new story to tell so there there was no question of like well if you read the comics you'll figure out some sort of secret clue like yeah ah, original storytelling by the way i think hbo max used to like erect a statue to gene smart who's just like showing up as like the uh, killing it killing it between watchmen this and hacks yeah yeah to go one, two, three in those three very disparate roles, and she's serving the story in very different ways in each role, uh, I think is just tremendous. Because here she's essentially just comic relief. I mean, the the popcorn <laughs> was very funny. <laughs> oh man, I love her. And then Even, in Hacks, she's the lead. So. Yeah, no, she's so good in Hacks. It's yeah. it's a it's a wonderful performance. Um, yeah, I mean. It, it's almost like cliched at this point to be like, oh yeah, Jean Smart, great at what she does. But I think what's really interesting about her is the fact that she's been willing to take some flyers on some pretty wild stuff. Like yeah. I, any, any actor who signed up for Legion, in my, in my opinion, like deserves a lot of, a lot of praise. Not, not that Legion was a, a very successful show in the long run, especially creatively, but certainly in terms of, audacity if you will like you know she got to do some wild ass stuff in that show and she did it with such skill and you know deserved a claim mm. i have wiped that show almost entirely from memory save for the image of like dan stevens stuck in a bubble 
Is that something that happens? Yes, he got at the end of season one, he got sucked <laughs> into a bubble and flew away. Okay. And I said, fuck you, Noah Hawley. And I turned <laughs> off my TV. I genuinely, uh, I can't recall Gene Smart on, on Legion. And I watched. She has a whole love story with Jermaine Clement. Uh, oh, I vaguely recall that. And they're in I mean, I also room. only vaguely recall it, but I know it happened. I'm yeah. fairly certain. <laughs> You're not incorrect. That yes. yeah, she's definitely like I mean, kudos to her to be like, you know, I don't know if I necessarily understand this, but I'll sign on to this. Well, I mean, sure, Watchmen was a, a leap of faith as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I would say, you know, after talking with y'all, I think I like no uh Town a little better than I had left it. I mean, I thought it was good, but I had some issues. But you guys made some good points and uh certainly I hope that HBO keeps making these kind of more original series because to your point, Liz, about how we just didn't know where it was going and there was no sort of source material to point to. Yeah. My big question mark at this point. So the whole AT&T thing was like, you have to do more. And mm -hmm. HBO was like, our whole thing is we don't do more. And AT&T was like, tough shit, you're going to do it. So they put in development all these things, and now the AT and T is gone. I'm curious what the you know what discover the Warner Media Discovery their whole thing is going to be. But in the interim, we will be left with there will be a short run of shows that were greenlit during this like you have to do more time, and I'm curious what those shows will be. Um, well, know, I know it. I was like, go ahead. I I just like. Because it, it was a fundamental change in how HBO does business, which was that they were super selective about which shows they greenlit and which shows they didn't. And there was this burst of time in which they greenlit almost everything, I think, except for the Game of Thrones spinoff that was made by women for whatever reason. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, God, God knows you can't let a woman do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, the actual, it, it's actually like something I'm, like I've been looking at the calendar and the schedule and, you know, just kind of a little befuddled because honestly, the next, I don't see any, there's, I, as far as I can tell, and I could be totally wrong about this, there's something huge I'm missing or hasn't been announced yet, but there's no notable large scale HBO series premiering until July with the White Lotus. And even then that's more of a quirky dramedy type thing. And you know, which, which it sounds great. I'm looking forward to it, but I mean, we're, we're going to continue the run in treatment continues to, you know, turn out four episodes a week. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of going to be quiet in HBOville for a little while. Yeah. I almost feel like, you know, you know, HBO usually is like, Oh, we're touting some big new series. Some, something new is on the horizon. Right. And if anything, I think, their next, you know, surge is going to be fundamentals. It's going to be the new season of Succession, the new season of Barry, the new season of Euphoria, like the right. stuff, like come back to these shows that have their audience built in. Yeah. And the reason we had like a, you know, I feel like there, well, wasn't there, there was an HBO show before Mayor, wasn't there? I mean, there was- The Undoing? A, yeah. Undoing, I, mean, I think was the last big one, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, the Nevers technically counts as well. Uh, that oh, was yes. largely right. That was large. I mean, a big one before Mayor was, I would say, Lovecraft Country. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking, I, I was just thinking like in this, this spring, just in the lead up to uh, Emmy's, uh, Emmy's mm -hmm. eligibility. We are now, uh, it is now June 1st, uh, the M Emmy's, uh, 
Emmy's nomination period, I believe, has just started. Uh, so the next next uh, few weeks will be full of uh, editorials from various uh, various trades and so forth, uh, touting touting uh, you know the big Emmys contenders for the year. But yeah, it's gonna yeah it'll be. Uh, I mean, Mayor's gonna do well, I'm sure. Uh, it's it was built for Emmys consideration, and I think it's really what, what's really going to become a question is like. What happens in the supporting actor categories uh, and all that? Uh, well, and also there's just so much more comp- competition now for HBO. You know, yeah. you're. It's funny. I'm I'm reading the the Hamilton biography, and so naturally, and then naturally, at one point, John Adams comes up. And I'm like, there was a John Adams miniseries in 2008 from oh, yeah. Tom Hooper of all people, and mm-hmm. it won 13 Emmys. And it's like that's what like if you had a prestige series, that's like HBO is where it was at. Like with you know, and yet like HBO was the home of Band of Brothers. It was the home of the Pacific and it's not the home of the one, the next World War II series from Hanks yeah. and Spielberg. Ma- mm-hmm. Was it Masters, Masters of the Air? Masters of the Air, yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's going, going that's Apple. Apple TV, yeah. Right. And so to me, like HBO is not only like, I don't, and I don't want to be like, oh, HBO is going to be hurting, but like, I think they have more competition now than they've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with that. Oh yeah, um, but in the meantime, like it, you know, there are all these other interesting you know ep- shows going to HBO Max too. Like, yeah. and then it, eventually, at some point, like, I, 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 I'm very curious if at any if, if at some point in the future we're just going to see like the complete complete disintegration of the line between HBO and HBO Max and everything. Oh, yeah. All, all, yeah. You know, like, I, it's really just a question of how long it takes. No, at some point they're just going to drop Max from the title and it's just going to be HBO again. They're it's already the like they're doing special airings of like the flight attendant on like TBS and stuff. So like they're pushing that. Oh for- God. Uh, I lost my gosh darn mind watching the uh, Warner media upfronts, like, like <laughs> which included like a 10 minute long sketch set aboard the Snowpiercer train featuring all of your favorite uh, <laughs> Warner Media talent. Like, Money well spent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they built that train. I guess they got to use it for something. Man, that's some dystopian shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, with that, <laughs> I don't think we can top that. <laughs> Let's move on to recently watched. Uh, Liz, what have you seen lately that you'd like to talk about? Oh, good Lord. Uh, skip me. Go to someone next. Uh, go, go to Adam. To, I'll go to Adam. Adam, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Man, I am just keeping the train rolling um, as I recently watched the director's cut of Troy for the first time. Uh, this past weekend, I chose Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, which I had never seen before. Um, I did not watch the director's cut. Uh, all The only thing that was available to me for free was the theatrical cut. Uh, and I remember like the crazy development of this one because it was like it was really like Nottingham and like Russell Crowe was going to play the sheriff of Nottingham, who was also Robin Hood. It was going to be this big like, you know, reveal and like a back and forth. And then for whatever reason, really Scott got bored of that idea and decided to play it straight as like it's essentially just an origin story for Robin Hood at this point. It's, it's and an origin story for the Magna Carta. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's Robin Hood Begins, essentially. I- I remember reading. I read the Robin the the Nottingham script ages ago. Um, oh yeah. I, but I have a very little memory of it, and I never saw the Ridley Scott Robin Hood. So I should I should see that at some point. 
I mean, and I knew the reputation of the Ridley Scott Robin Hood was not great, but like I dug it. And I don't know if I'm just like nostalgic for when studios spend a lot of money on like production value on like movies like this and like Troy, where it's just kind of like, oh, that's kind of neat to see castles and, you know, all of these things and explosions and all this stuff. I thought it was like an interesting enough twist on like a how you would do like an origin story of Robin Hood in like a historical context, even though I'm sure it's wildly inaccurate uh, when it comes to history. Um, Oscar Isaac has blue eye contacts for some reason in this movie. I don't understand why. Um, it's don't, very strange. <laughs> don't do things to Oscar Isaac's face. He yeah. looks great the way he is. He Looking Prince at you, John. Counterpoint. X Men Apocalypse. I was gonna say no. Yeah, I was gonna say don't don't put things on his face. Just yeah. let him be his face. But yeah, I mean, Danny Houston is really good as as King Richard the Lionheart. Uh, you know, Kate Blanchett is Marion. Um, and that's interesting. Again, I mean, I don't know. It's possible it's just like the passage of time or just like my, my nostalgia for movies where like they actually built sets and shot outside versus like, we'll just green screen it or like, we'll do it in the volume. Um, I don't know. There's some kind of like tactile quality to it. And, it. and those kinds of movies that were like a director like Ridley Scott could get like a, you know, $200 million budget to go and make movie that's essentially a drama with a few set pieces in it but it's not like uh you must have a set piece every 20 minutes so um yeah really scotch robin hood i didn't hate it that that was my reaction as someone yeah. who who likes the recent taron edgerton robin hood i am in no position to judge <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the really scott robin hood oh yeah i saw when it came out okay and yeah. you're not a fan i don't like it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i thought i thought i think part of my disdain for it is that i feel like nottingham was such an interesting concept in terms yeah. of like robin hood is a criminal what is the perspective of the guy trying to catch a criminal if the criminal is robin hood i think that yeah. was like a medieval detective film i thought was an interesting thing and like to make it like it's archery you know like it's just <laughs> to make just a regular robin hood it's like and then they invented the magna carta i just thought was not as interesting attacked it very much it feels like ridley scott just wanted to do a kingdom of heaven kind of thing again mm. like it it's very much him back in that mode right that kind of historical context and stuff and it, you know it's not a great movie but uh i enjoyed it for what it was worth sure uh, uh liz what do you got anything okay. yet <laughs> uh, yeah yeah sorry i just i no, just no, had a hard i just hardcore blanked and i needed a moment to think about it even though i knew this was coming um but I wanted to shout out for Kim's Convenience, uh, which uh, you guys just heard me talk about during the staff meeting. Uh, but Kim's Convenience is a very charming Canadian sitcom that got picked up by Netflix a couple of years ago uh, and has been airing new seasons there. And unfortunately, the upcoming fifth season will be its last season. But it's uh, it's it, it's it's such a good show. Uh, it's it's just a really nice like slice of life uh look at life at toronto and uh this family that owns convenience store hence the name uh and it's a, you know it's a, there's some really great stuff about immigrant culture i'm not sure how i feel about the very deliberate broken english spoken by the parents and the parents of the show that um one of whom is played by the paul paul Yu sun you who lee i'm mispronouncing that i'm so sorry uh, but he's a great actor who uh, recently showed up in The Mandalorian, playing um, one of the uh, one of the uh, is it the resist? It's not the resistance. The, the I, I'm the like, New I'm, Republic. He's a the New Republic. Republic. He's a he's a New Republic official. Uh, 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 like official, he gets to fly a Tie Fighter and all that. Uh, but it's a great show, and it's also uh, if you are excited at all for Shang Chi, 
in the in the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, it's uh, the it's the big showcase. It's the big breakout role for Samuel Liu, uh, who is uh, starring in that film. And it, it's he's he's so fun on the show. He's just a great charismatic, uh, great charismatic lead. And I'm just really excited for him to get a big blockbuster feature. So yeah. that. That finals, that finals, the show's just worth checking out in general. And the final season premieres uh, as you listen to this tomorrow or uh, the, the 2nd of the June. Great. Yeah, it's definitely one I want to sort of catch up on before I check out Shang-Chi. Yeah. Or it's not, and that, you know what? And I'm also butchering. It's not pronounced Shang-Chi either. It's like pronounced like Shang-Chi or something. Oh, Shang-Chi. good Lord. Yes, I, 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 I apologize also for mispronouncing that. Um, okay. Uh, so for me, uh, my recommendation, or I think it's a recommendation, but it's what I also recently watched. I watched this documentary from 2016 called Dawson City Frozen Time, which is this really uh, interesting story about history and memory and silent film. So basically, in 1979, in Dawson City, which is in the Yukon, Uh, they were excavating to build this new rec center and they found all these, this just entire uh, reels buried underground of nitrate film that were just there sticking out of the ground had been preserved in the permafrost. And what the documentary endeavors to do is then it, it uses, it tells the story of how Dawson city sort of grew up around the gold rush, how it was sort of abandoned, not even abandoned, but sort of how the population diminished after the gold rush and how it sort of kept trying to survive. And then why these silent films came here, it's sort of solving a mystery a bit, but then it uses also these silent films to illustrate plot points from the film. It's really, so for instance, like, you know, I sent a letter to so-and-so and they'll use the silent film that they found in the film, in the find to, to illustrate what's happening. But then there will also be great details like, you know, the, the film is move, basically covers from the late 19th century to uh, the 1970s, and I guess up to the present day, really. But it's, it'll come across the, uh, the White Sox scandal. And it has footage from newsreels of the White Sox of that time. And the thing that's so interesting is that so much of this nitrate film has been lost because nitrate is essentially a, com- a very combustible. It is, you know, very much do not taunt happy fun ball. Um, <laughs> the amount of times things catch on fire in Dawson City is kind of crazy because nitrate film, aside from being highly flammable, is also just unstable. It, if you don't store it correctly, it will burst into flames. So it's sort of this history that almost like wants to be lost. And yet in this small town that no one really thought much of, this huge piece of history is unearthed. And I just thought there was something magical about that. And so it's a really good documentary. Uh, It just left Criterion Channel, but uh, hopefully it crops up somewhere else because it's definitely worth uh, your time. That sounds cool as hell. Yeah. Um, So thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Liz, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Lizlet. That's L-I-Z-L-E-T. And Adam, where can people find you? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you later this week as Adam and I talk about both A Quiet Place Part 2 and Cruella. Get your Dalmatians ready and don't stand near a cliff. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye! <laughs> 